Good morning. Welcome to Kahului Baptist Church. If you're just getting here or if you are joining us online, I want to say we miss you for our members who have yet to come back. Uh, amen, church. We miss our family. Amen. So we, we miss you, and uh, I do encourage you. And uh, as things continue to open up, even with uh, new variants of COVID, uh, Delta and Lambda and who knows what else will come, uh, I do want to encourage you still yet to come. There is no substitute for worshiping in person corporately with the body of Christ. And um, I, I wonder in years to come what we will see are the side effects of prolonged absence from corporate worship. And I don't know that I want to see what those side effects entail, both for us and for our children. And so I do want to encourage you. We love you. Come on back. We get some space here. If we don't have space here, we'll make space to the glory of God. So, all right, let's get to it. Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 20. Title of the sermon is Some Things Never Change. Some Things Never Change. The whole law will be fulfilled. Not a jot, not a tittle, not an iota will pass away till all is fulfilled. Heaven and earth may pass. But God's eternal purposes in the scriptures will stand. Some things never change. In 1992, sitting President George H.W. Bush was on a tour of Asia, and he was visiting Japan at a state dinner. In between the second and third courses of the meal, the second course was raw salmon with caviar. The third course was grilled beef with some sort of sauce and pepper. He made history, George Bush did. How? By becoming the first sitting U.S. president to vomit on the prime minister of Japan. All right, all right. You ever, have a, you ever host a dinner and feel like everything's going wrong? You're in good company. Be encouraged, amen? Or maybe we could talk about the former food habits of our former president, uh, Donald Trump. While on the campaign trail, the president was said to eat meals resembling or representing the four major food groups, McDonald's, KFC, pizza, and Diet Coke. Some of you, are that's your four major food groups, amen, right? All that to say meals are massively important. They play a huge role symbolically, both amongst people and families. They play huge roles amongst foreign state leaders. They communicate massive concepts. And we're going to see that concept operative in the backdrop of our passage today in Matthew chapter 5 in ways that you may have not considered before. If you're just joining us, we've been working through the gospel according to Matthew, and we just finished the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, that wonderful, famous passage, and we're working into now the substance of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon itself, uh, as we recalled, it, and I encourage to you, uh, I'm taking this challenge on myself as well, was actually arranged and meant to be memorized by followers of Christ by disciples. It was arranged in such a way that was easy to recall. There's often sets of three, sets of six, and other various mnemonic devices embedded in the sermon itself to help you memorize it in a pre-literate age. And so I encourage you, try to do so, and you will find when you have that, that longing in your heart of, what do I do right now? 
What would God have me to do in this minute? Oh, that I had wisdom of God. Then I encourage you, the Sermon on the Mount very well, very well may provide you much of the mind of Christ to know how to live and move in your everyday life. And so uh, I encourage that to you. But now we're getting into the substance. And we would do well to remember that Jesus is presenting himself as the wise king who internalizes and embodies the law of God such that he is truly flourishing or in a state of blessedness by God. And Jesus, in this sermon, invites others to follow him, his listeners to hear and respond and experience true life, flourishing life as it was meant to be lived in proper relation to God, to others, and into all creation, the world around us. This sermon, this particular section, proves to be a transitional section. It wraps up the Beatitudes, his introduction, and ties this next section together in a seamless uh, fashion. And so let's pray, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us. Father in heaven, we do want to ask your Holy Spirit for help. You promised that he would help us, that he would illuminate the way before us, that he would bring your word and its understanding to our hearts and to our minds. And so I ask for the Holy Spirit's help to illuminate the scriptures, open our mind. I ask for the Holy Spirit, Father, that he would open our hearts, that areas that uh, we need to grow in, that they would be brought to light, areas that we need to repent in, that we would do so with joy. And so, Father, I pray that you would drive this word home deep into our hearts. You are faithful, as we sung, and we know you will do this, as you promised. I also want to pray for Lanai Baptist Church. I thank you for uh, Pastor Sean and the deacons who are serving alongside him. I do lift them up as they are seeking a pastor. I also lift up Valley Isle Fellowship as they too are seeking a pastor. Father, would you send them a holy, Christ-like shepherd who is able to teach and who will love the people well. We pray, Father, that you would send them in your time and in your way. Would you give the people unity, single-mindedness as they seek this out? May they not compromise on character qualifications. May they not compromise on sound doctrine, but may they seek them, and would you provide, Father? And so we ask that you would bless the preaching of the gospel in Lanai and here and all across the islands for the glory and praise of Christ, we ask. Amen. All right, here's your big idea. Here's your big idea for those taking notes. In Christ, we have a greater covenant, shine a brighter light, and possess true righteousness. Trying to capture all the facets of 13 through 20. In Christ, we have a greater covenant, shine a brighter light, and possess a true righteousness. Number one, a better covenant, verse 13. Jesus kicks off and says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, remember the transitional phrase in Matthew 5. He's going through the Beatitudes, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, here's the link, right? I want you to start to hear the link from verse 12 to verse 13, uh, 11, 12, and 13. So first, it's all, notice the pronouns. Blessed are those. Blessed are the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the merciful. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs, verse 10, is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are, hear the pronoun switch right here, 
Listen for it. Blessed are you. So it was all third person before, and then he switches to second person. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And he ends verse 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you, see the transitional seam there? You are the salt of the earth. Now, there's a more, uh, another transitional piece here, which I'm going to bring into focus now. You are the salt of the earth, he says. Now, salt in the ancient world was just massively important. They, they would refer to it as white gold, so to speak. Uh, in an era that predated refrigeration and modern technology, uh, salt was the means, the method of preserving food. You would salt your meats for preservation so that they would last and not rot quickly. It's a widely known fact in the ancient world you could be paid, soldiers at times could be paid in salt. Just think, you go, you get your paycheck, payday, you would be so happy to get salt. Yes, all right, I needed some. I was running low. That's how coveted and prized this was in the ancient world. In fact, some of them would receive an allocation of salt, a stipend of salt, so to speak, and they called that the Latin word salarium, which ultimately comes into the English. You know that you should already know this. You start to hear the salarium into a salary. What is your salary? That's where it comes from. It comes from that ancient idea of they would be paid in salt, what you take home. We might say in modern, maybe not not as modern, 2021, maybe like a little bit older usage of this idea. Somebody, we might say, Pastor Bill is worth his salt. What am I saying? We are commending his work ethic. We are commending his labors, that he works hard. He works faithfully. He's worth his salt. Salt had all kinds of uses in the ancient world as it does today. This has led many, when they preach on a passage like this, to think of all the various uses of salt. And then they find ways that the church can perform salt-like functions in the world. So a lot of times you'll hear a sermon like this, and then I'll start to think, I'll brainstorm, you know, the preacher will brainstorm, okay, what does salt do? And here's some examples. They'll say salt is uh, uh, preservative. It preserves, okay? So this means Jesus is saying you are the salt of the earth. You are to keep the world from moral decay. The earth is rotting and sin and darkness, and believers as salt are to function as a type of holy preservative. They'll maybe draw that application. Is that a wrong application? Is that true biblically in other places? For sure, for sure. But how far do you go in that application? How far should believers attempt to function in uh, preventing the world from moral decay? Should we all turn and wholesale 100% try to affect change at the societal legislation through, uh, at the societal level through legislation, through uh, running for office, through really trying to impose the law of Christ on a pagan world such that we can slow down, pump the brakes on moral decay in our nation? You see what? Do we, is it only primarily through the preaching of the gospel that we seek to slow the world? These are conversations that are not insignificant in our day and age. But before we even have those conversations, my question is, is that what Jesus is getting at in this passage? Or 
Let's see, the salt is preservation. We could say, hmm, what else do we do with salt? It spices and adds flavor to things. And so pastors may say, believers, you add flavor, spice to the world. Some of you are like, yes, I'm spicy and flavorful. And they might say you do it through the joy of the Lord or holiness or something of that nature. Or some would say salt can taste bitter. It's a salty, a bitter like, type of taste. Ugh. It's distasteful in, in large concentrated doses. And they might draw an application and say, well, to the world that's entrenched in wickedness and darkness, that loves darkness and unrighteousness, that believers can be distasteful to a world that's entrenched to darkness. Now, suddenly we have a two to three month sermon series if we compound that with his metaphor of light and we do the same thing. Whew, I got all kinds of sermons. We can go weeks on this. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical. That's not my intention. Uh, all of these things have, may have truth found in other portions of Scripture. Uh, some of them may have truth found in this portion of Scripture. But I think that approach misses the mark of what Jesus is communicating here. Remember, Jesus is preaching a sermon. And in this sermon, our Savior is not just dropping nuggets of wisdom that are random and loosely connected, if connected at all. They are interconnected. They build on one another. They are intrinsically linked to what he says in the Beatitudes and what comes after in the sermon. And so if all we did this morning was focus on salt and what it did in the ancient world and then apply it, we miss why Jesus brought this connection up in the first place. You see? And if we miss why he brought it up, we will almost certainly draw wrong conclusions as to what Jesus wants us to do in response to this truth. So, Having said that, and I'm almost positive I've done that very thing at times in my teaching ministry and times in my pastoral ministry, having said that, what is the connection then to what came before and what came after because it's massively important? Well, let's remember, Jesus is sitting where? On a mountain. He's on a mountain, and it says he opened his mouth and began to teach. This is an intentional, well-known position of authority that Jesus is projecting, much like Moses of old. He's preaching on the nature of the kingdom of heaven, and in the process, he's going to show what true repentance actually looks like. Remember chapter 4, Jesus becomes, he picks up the mantle from John the Baptist, and now Jesus is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so in the process, Jesus is also going to show us what repentance looks like. He's just finished the Beatitudes. He ended on those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, he's talking about those who are walking in accordance, we could say, with covenant faithfulness. That's important. Covenant faithfulness as they seek the covenant promises while they live a life that is pleasing to God for the glory of his name. He held out the promise of reward, Jesus did, in verse 12, as a reason to find joy in the midst of persecution. In other words, he says, you're going to be reviled and you're going to be persecuted, and he says there's reward for that. Great is your reward. And then he likens his followers to the prophets who came before them. That's important. 
not accidental, to the prophets who came before them. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so, uh, and then the verse, and then the parallel in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is the connection? I'm simultaneously teaching you how to read your Bible in a way that keeps you from falling into heresy and to get tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. I hope you see this, all right? Uh, So I hope in your daily Bible readings, you're asking yourself these things. Uh, What is the connection between prophets, salt, and light? What is the connection Where is the overlap, the meeting point? Because each of these individually, you could say a whole bunch of things, but he puts them all together. So I'm asking you to think real fast with your thinking cap. What is the connection between prophets, salt, and light? The answer is what frames this whole passage and the rest of the sermon. The answer is covenant. You ask, what is the connection between prophet, salt, and light? The answer is covenant. Now, I'm going to try and flesh that out for you here. Ironically, in verse 17 through 20, or maybe not ironically, Jesus is talking about what? The law and the prophets, the old covenant. It's no accident. Now, let's think about this. Prophets, salt, light. Prophets, they were considered to be heralds and reinforcers of the covenant. That's what they did. That's what a prophet did. They heralded the covenant. They were reinforcers of God's covenant. Now, they would come onto the scene, these prophets, they were sent by God, and they would go to Israel, and they would call Israel to faithfulness to Yahweh, to covenant faithfulness, to fulfill the terms of your covenant status. You are the people of God. You are not the people of Baal. You are not the people of Dagon. You are not the people of of Belteshazzar or, or Belshazzar, right? You're not the, the god of the Persians, the god of, of the Babylonians. You are not their people. You are Yahweh's people. They were covenant heralds and reinforcers. Be faithful to the covenant. Trust God. So we could say prophets are covenant heralds. Now, let's link this to salt. Salt in the ancient world had lots of uses, specifically in the scriptures, that's what we're after. In Judaism, salt was used to initiate a covenant as a sign of permanence because of its preservation quality, because of its ability to keep things for a long time in the ancient world, it was used to enact a covenant as a sign of permanence. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 After this, I'm going to go to Numbers 18, verse 19. Numbers 18, 19. But we'll start in Leviticus 2, 13. Check this out. It says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. No big deal. Okay, whatever. You shall not, here it is, let the what? Salt Salt of the covenant. What a peculiar phrase. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Now, here he is. He's giving all these stipulations on offerings and grain offerings and stuff that we tend to skip over in our Bible reading plans because we don't understand it. And embedded in that part that we skipped over is this covenant 
of salt. Now, what does that mean? Scratching your head, I'm scratching my head with you. Let's go to Numbers 18, 19. This is on the Aaronic priesthood offerings. Now, uh, the people of Israel would bring sacrifices to the priests, and the priests got to keep some of these sacrifices, and they're talking all about it right here in Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a, there it is, covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. It is a covenant of salt, an enacted agreement showing permanence. Or last one, 2 Chronicles 13, 5. 2 Chronicles 13, 5. What's happening is there's a king. Now Israel and Judah have split at this point. Uh, you have a king, Jeroboam, and another king, Abijah, or Abijah, and they are both about to go to war. Jeroboam grossly outnumbers him. A, uh, two to one, there's 800,000 versus 400,000. Oh, what's going to happen? Uh, Abijah, he gives an answer and a speech, and he's rebuking Jeroboam, the challenging king. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? He's staking his claim to the throne. That covenant that God made with David is permanent. It will not be revoked, and you may not challenge it, Jeroboam. It is a covenant of salt. And in that time, if you wanted to show a permanence of a covenant, an agreement, you would eat salt. You would either eat it alone or with bread and maybe some other food to show that this is a lasting covenant, and this is a sign of fidelity that I'm going to make this, and this will not be broken. That would make for a fun wedding ceremony practice, wouldn't it? Till death do us part, baby. <laughs> and so the picture starts to emerge of what Jesus is saying. You are the salt of the earth. He just referenced the covenant heralds. You, were like, you are like the prophets before you. The covenant heralds. He's drawing on a picture of covenant permanence. And now we're going to see, and we're going to bring this into sharper focus, into greater light, pun intended, with verse 14. You are the light of the world. So we could say in summary, before heading to verse 14, Jesus is calling his disciples. He's saying to his disciples that they are to be an enduring sign heralds and proclaimers of a new covenant arrangement between God and people. But if you're listening and you're a Jew, this is, again, this is no small issue. What people? If I'm heralding a, a covenant, cool, cool, I'll, okay, right on. Israel was heralds of a covenant. I can, I can live with that. A covenant with who? And on what terms? Leads us to our next verse 14. We have a brighter light. Jesus goes on to say that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I told you the prophet, the connection between prophet, salt, 
and light was covenant. I gave you prophet and salt. Now we're going to do light. You are the light of the world. At this point, a lot of people make a mistake. Here's what a lot of people make a mistake. A lot of pastors make a mistake. I've made the mistake, all right? They're going to go, and they're gonna, you're going to look in your Bible study, and you're going to look, and you're going to cross-reference, and you're going to go to John chapter 8, verse 12. In John's gospel, Jesus, during a feast, gets up and says, I am the light of the world. And then we say, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Jesus says he's the light of the world. Now he's telling his disciples, you are the light of the world. And what we start to do is we import John's meaning, John's narrative, John's message into Matthew's prematurely. And what that does is that risks losing Matthew's focus as to why Matthew brought up this picture of light. And it's a little bit different. It's not opposed to. Obviously, the Gospels aren't opposed to each other. They interlock and they enhance one another. So we want to hear Matthew. Why did Jesus, why did Matthew record Jesus saying, you are the light of the world here? And we got to look at Matthew for that. Matthew has already primed us in chapter 4. He's already got us ready, chapter 4, verse 14 to 17, after the temptations of Jesus. Now he's quoting Isaiah 9, 1 to 2, and saying, a light has dawned in this area of Galilee of the Gentiles. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. He goes on to say, on them light has dawned. So this is Matthew's gospel. He's primed us to see this picture, this image of light shining on the darkness. And now we come to Matthew 5.14, and operative behind Jesus is another quote from Isaiah, another backdrop, if you will, to fuel what Jesus is saying. This is Isaiah 42, verse 6. He's expanding on another famous Old Testament passage. He says, this, Jesus says this, or sorry, Isaiah 42, 6 says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Here it is. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. A covenant, and there you start to see the link now between light and covenant. These two are Hebrew parallels. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. One scholar put it like this, quote, throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of God and manifesting the glory of God among the nations, close quote. He's saying light is a consistent picture, a consistent image in Isaiah for God's people fulfilling their missionary purpose for the glory of God and as a light to the nations. And so here's Jesus. As Jesus calls his disciples salt of the world, light of, salt of the earth, light of the world, essentially he's saying that they are to be heralds, proclaimers of a new and lasting and enduring covenant for all humanity, Jew and Gentile. That's good news for you, by the way, KBC, because you are a Gentile, most of you, right? That's good, that's good news for us. And they are to proclaim this covenant, his disciples, this covenant arrangement in word and deed. 
Their words are to bear witness and to explain the truth of God's work. That's their words, to to bear witness and to explain the truth of God's work. Their lives are to bear witness to the power of God's work, to change, transform, and bring about true flourishing under His loving, kind, and gracious rule. Therefore, KBC, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of my favorite times of the year uh, is New Year's. Uh, one of my favorite times to see fireworks is uh, New Year's, the few times I stay awake for the fireworks. Uh, and I like in Kahului, if you get up on the roof of our house, or uh, an even better spot is somewhere in Wailuku, and in the darkness of the night, midnight, you already know it's going to just like war zone in central Maui. It's just fireworks are popping off everywhere. But I love even more looking way off in the distance. You can see in Pukalani and Kula and beyond, you can see the darkness pierced by the light as fireworks explode in the air and illuminate all the light around them, the darkness around them. Beloved, that is the picture of what Jesus has for us. You are the light of the world. Let it shine. Explode in in glory as you pierce the darkness. When you go to your workplace, that's the picture that came to mind. You go to your workplace and you're like a beam of light just clocking in. Spiritually, it was dark, and as believers get present in their places of employment, it suddenly gets lighter. Light shines and dawns where people had no access to it. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. And then we'll move to the next section, verse 17 to 20, the greater Moses. The greater Moses, point three. This is a passage that is in no measure easy to understand. Everybody gets a sense of what Jesus is not doing. Right? So, so unanimously, scholars are agreed, Jesus didn't abolish the law. All right? He didn't do away with the Old Testament in that sense. How do we know that? Because Jesus says that. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's not there to be opposed to that. But exactly what Jesus is getting at is all kinds of debated because fulfill can have nine different meanings, biblical meanings in different ways used by different authors across the Testaments. And so it, it can be a little bit hard and tricky to pinpoint exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Often what happens is we'll come here and in the following passage, the rest of Matthew 5, people will start to uh, propose Jesus is here to give the true interpretation of the law. The scribes and Pharisees misinterpreted or misapplied the true intent of the Mosaic law and fell into legalism. So some would say Jesus is giving the true intention, the true meaning of the law. Others would offer uh, that Jesus is here now uh, setting himself up superior to Moses. And, And of course, both of these are true in their own light. But that's also going to miss the point. Because what Jesus is saying, in part, he says, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he gets verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all 
is accomplished. In other words, Jesus isn't just coming to say, hey, let me, let me give you the true intent of the law. Let me give you an alternative rendering of the law. He's, he's not doing any of those. What Jesus is saying is, whatever your squabbles or debates are about the law, I'm the last word. It's irrelevant at this point and in this time because what I'm about to say is going to supersede all of it. That's incredible. Whatever we say about this passage going forth, we cannot miss that this is a Christological statement. Jesus is making a claim about himself over the law. Jesus is showing us something about who he is and what he is doing. And if I had to say it in a nutshell, we'd put it like this. That in continuity to all that God has done preceding the arrival of Jesus, in continuity of the saving covenant work that began in the Garden of Eden, Jesus is bringing to completion all that God began to do in ancient times, every single bit of it. He sees all of these threads of typology, all of these foreshadowings in the law, if you will. The sacrifices point to a greater coming sacrifices. The priesthood points to a greater priesthood that's to come. Jesus, a priest after the, after the order of Melchizedek. The, the laws pointing to a greater righteousness and holiness. We see all the, the holidays, the Sabbath pointing to a greater rest that is to come, right? All of these threads of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying they all coalesce like many rivers into an ocean that is me. And I'm going to fulfill it all. All of it finds its culmination in me. And this is massively important, beloved. If you want to go home and eat pork chops tonight for dinner, it's because of what Jesus is asserting and doing here. If you want to enjoy bacon as a Gentile with all of your freedom in Christ, it's because of what Jesus is doing here. If you did not observe the Sabbath yesterday, and if you did work or labored and you're not dead, if you've ever uh, done a great sin and serially disobeyed your parents and didn't get stoned for it, if you did any of these things, if you wear clothes of blended material, if you grow a garden with different types of crops overlapping in the same section, if you do any and all of these things, it's because of what Christ is asserting here. This is massively important. And Jesus says, before we talk about what it means and how it works together, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. So whatever we say, we know he didn't come to do that. And he's saying in its place, I'm here. And everything I'm doing is about to bring something that's in continuity with what God has done in the past and the pinnacle of that work. Paul calls it in Galatians 4, the fullness of time when Jesus came. We should also see the danger here. The danger, the fact that Jesus says that he makes a point to say, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, should clue us in on the fact that what Jesus is going to say could be construed as doing such. 
And in fact, the early church had to wrestle with this. Paul had to wrestle with this. What is the nature of the law? What are you saying about Moses? This guides our entire way of life. This is massively important. If you're going to talk covenant, we're going old covenant. What are you going to do with Moses? We love Moses. And so we should see from Jesus' statement, it is possible that some will misconstrue what he's saying. Whatever it is, the conclusion that Jesus draws is that the entire Mosaic law is still binding on the believer. Dramatic pause. Once you understand how it is fulfilled and accomplished in Christ. Once you understand how it is fulfilled and accomplished in Christ on our behalf. We'll flush that out in the weeks to come as Jesus works further into the sermon and gives several examples of what he's talking about. But we already have a clue hinted at in the Beatitudes. And he's going to get at it more as he presses on. The clue is that Jesus is going to reorient their understanding of righteousness such that it's not external dressing mainly like the Pharisees and Sadducees, but it's a righteousness that starts on the inside and works its way out. And everything we think, say, and do, it starts on the inside that works its way out. And because of that, it is a superior righteousness. And he can say, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it is a righteousness that starts from the inside and totally consumes everything as it works its way out. We'll flesh that out more next week. Let's close and wrap up with some application because it's hot. No. All right, salt and light, salt and light. Here's your application, all right? If you're called to be covenant heralds of a new arrangement between God and men, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, here's some application. How do you bear witness to this in your daily life? That's just worth asking. How, how am I sitting here this morning preaching, and how are you, or standing here, how are you sitting there this morning hearing the Word of God? How are you bearing witness to this covenant arrangement in your life actively? Let's delve into some of your relationships. What does this look like with your children? If you have young children, I hope you're taking every opportunity uh, opportunity, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6, from the rising of the sun to its setting, to teach them about the God who made them, who loves them, who made this world and all things in it, that you are doing family worship consistently, regularly, and with intentionality, if you have young children. If you have, how's that look out? If you have middle-aged children, middle school children, and high school children, how are you leveraging the influence, the time you have to bear witness to this covenant arrangement? How about adult children that you have? Adult children, or rather children who became adults. How do you leverage your time with intentionality to call them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to bear witness to this new covenant arrangement that will result in God being glorified and their ultimate flourishing and joy? How about with other people in your family? Your 
siblings, aunties, uncles, nieces, nephews, grandparents, great-grandparents, how do your words bear witness to this reality? Coworkers, and on and on, your friends, on and on we can go, your high school friends, your college friends, your current social circles. Colossians 4, 6 says this, let your speech always be gracious, you know the rest of it, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you're to answer each person. How do your words bear witness to this new covenant arrangement? Another way that Matthew's going to say this is at the end of Matthew's gospel. Do you know what it is? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus is going to say this again. He's going to say it at least four more times in his gospel in different ways. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. How are you bearing witness to this in your life with your words? You say, well, I, most people, I think, I just try to be a good person. I try to shine a light to be a good witness. We'll talk about deeds in a minute, but I'm talking about words. You have to explain your deeds, don't you? Or else they don't have context or they could be misconstrued, misunderstood, misapplied. You must speak your words. Oh, who taught you to work like that? My mom, my parents, you know, honestly, the grace of God working in me. I used to be a slouch, a lazy bum, or what, right, whatever, were it not for his kindness at work in my family, right? We can, we can have intentionality with our words that shine a light to our Father in a way that gives him glory, or we could pass the opportunity. Oh, I, I got taught a good work ethic. God was very kind to me and gave me good parents who worked hard. One shifts the mind elsewhere. Oh, how, you're such a good businessman, or, or you're so skilled at this job. How, how'd you learn that? Honestly, I went to a good school. Okay, I had good teachers. True, true, true. God was kind to me. And from the time I was young, I was working hard with my hands, and I just enjoyed doing this, and I just love doing it. The Lord is a good, he's a maker, right? You can draw attention to God in everything you do with intentionality. But you can also do it in a way that's kind of like grading, too, right? That, that's too much, uh, so, right? We, that's what we're all afraid of. That's, that's too much. That, that comes off as maybe a Ned Flanders, right? Hi, diddly oh, good neighbor. I think that's what we don't like. We, we don't want to necessarily be that kind. Of, and I'm not saying it requires that type of mentality. But my concern is that we're not even close to that. We're not even trying that. You would be intentional with your words to bear witness to the work of God to those around you in your life. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. How do your words bear witness? Number two, how do your works bear witness? That's what we're talking about now. How do your works bear witness to this new covenant arrangement. Beloved, a powerful word is cut at the knees by a compromised life. We could say that. A powerful word is cut by a compromised life. You may have a great, great message, a great word that helps people, but if your life is inconsistent or out of sync with the gospel claims and power and demand, your witness will be deteriorated. It would be similar to maybe seeking out an obese personal trainer. 
You're not going to do that, right? You're not going to go and seek somebody who, or, or a doctor who, who's just a, a serial chain smoker, does all kind of bad things for their health, and, and you're going to seek, uh, I think I'd rather go to somebody who's actually practicing what they're telling me to do. And in like manner, a powerful word is cut by a compromised life. So let me ask you this. Are there practices and areas in your life that knowingly, that you know in your heart of hearts, compromise the truth of your words? What practices, what kind of behaviors, actions, daily uh, habits are you engaging in that you know compromise the power of your words? Beloved, the Lord is inviting you. He is indeed commanding you to leave those things this morning, to repent and return to him with your whole heart, wholehearted devotion to him. So that's your words, compromising actions and works. Last one, how are you intentionally inviting the nations or others or others into this new covenant reality? Right, so that's your words, that's your work, that's your uh, not compromising your witness, but what are you doing positively to actively invite others into this new covenant arrangement in your life? How is that manifesting itself for you? Let me give you a few things to consider. Intentional openness in relationships has got to be sought after and cultivated. Intentional openness in relationships has got to be sought after and cultivated. Uh, in other words, we always just need to be on guard against that, that natural tendency that we have to forget the stranger, the outsider, the outcast, that we get in our social circles, and I got Mabel and Judy Brinsfield down here in the front, and you sit on the front row, you get picked on, right? So, uh, good job. No, I love you. Nihao ma. All right, so... Uh, we got them, and let's just say we're good friends. I love these two, and we got our circle here, and, and we kind of edge out anybody else with our body language, our actions, and our time. It, we communicate in everything that this is not open to you. You see, we need to cultivate an intentional openness in our relationships while simultaneously fostering deep relationship, long-term relationship. And these two things can be tricky to balance, but they must be balanced. They must be practiced together and in tandem. How can we foster greater openness to invite the nations and others into this new covenant reality. The reality is we have forever to spend together. Do you know that? We have forever to hang out, to shoot the breeze, to explore the new heavens and the new earth, and what that looks like. I don't have time this morning to extrapolate, but we have forever to do that. And we want to invite others with the limited time they have and we have into a new covenant reality arrangement with God. So, beloved, I urge you this, this Sunday, starting today at the picnic, starting at the Maui Tropical Plantation, and your evening festivities that you'll be engaging in the rest of this Lord's Day, use your time, use your abilities, use your intentionality to invite others to follow Jesus and to know his love. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Thank you for this word. 
Thank you that you choose to use the foolishness of preaching to advance your kingdom. Thank you that you use our uh, sometimes convoluted efforts to shine your light and to invite us into relationship with yourself. As we sang, without warning, desiring, or deserving, we found our treasure, our pleasure in you. And would you do that this morning? And those who are listening and those who are watching, may we find our treasure in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.